welcome to Two Boomer Women. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I've been talking with Boomer women for almost a decade now. (laughs) Well, I guess I've been talking to Boomer women all my adult life. Uh, Reinventing myself several times along the way, though, but always focused on us, Boomer women. With this incarnation of Two Boomer Women, I'll be interviewing other women who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at twoboomerwomen.com. If you want to be a guest on Two Boomer Women, bring it on. There's an application form at the website, too. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value. We know how to do it and we must perpetuate the art form. So, let's get started with today's show. Hello, podcast listeners, Agnes here. Before we get started on this week's episode, I need to put a short message in. Two weeks ago, I chatted with Durga Mata Chaudhry. What an interesting woman. I invited her back for a second episode, which I'll present shortly. But as with our chat two weeks ago, the time flew. And as her story and stories were so interesting, I just kept on going. The result was a conversation way too long for a podcast episode. So I've divided it into two episodes. This week, you'll listen to Durgamata's stories about her music making with Pipe and Tabor her discovery of and passion for silk painting, and then she shares information about forest bathing and why it is so therapeutic. Next week, Durgamata talks us through her seven steps to happiness, and oh my goodness, just listening to her describe it reduced my stress, so be sure to come back next week. She also had an exercise for me, and I hope you'll join in next week and help us describe the qualities and skills of a happy person was a great exercise for me, so I'm hoping you'll participate. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the Two Boomer Women podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Two weeks ago, I had such an interesting guest on that our time together flew by, and we had to wrap before we had an opportunity to hear about several aspects of her life slash business that I was really curious about. So today, I am thrilled to welcome back. Durgamata Chaudhry, a.k.a. Durgamata of London. Hello again. Hello, Agnes. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me again. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled about this and I'm excited about uh, this episode. Now, after we wrapped two weeks ago, I mentioned there were three things I wanted to talk to you about this week. Now, while I do encourage our listeners to catch our first episode, as your story is so interesting... And I know you asked me to do some homework for an interactive exercise today, but I want to start where we left off. You played us out with your pipe last time, and I apologize, uh, Zoom tried to mute it as the pitch was quite high, but you are a pipe and tabor player? This is right. Yeah, what, what are those two instruments, and how did they become part of your life? Yes, well, I grew up in a, in, on a farm in East Anglia. And there was a village near us or a small town near us called Thaxted. And every year they had a Morris dancing ring. And it was one of the biggest rings in the country. So we always used to go there with our, our parents. And very often we'd have visiting Morris dancers staying at our house. And Morris was very much part of our lives. My older sister went on to play the pipe and tabor for a Morris group. And the pipe is a, it's like a tin whistle, but it's only got three holes. 
and you play it by overblowing to get the full scales and you use one hand and with the other hand you beat a drum called a tabor and the pipe and tabor is a medieval instrument which was um it's commonly seen in things like carvings and statues and things to do with the middle ages and uh, manuscripts and things like that and the pipe and tabor players were actually just within the community um they would entertain at court they would play in the villages they'd lead things in the dancing and the kind of annual festivals and things like that and what we have now remaining is a pipe and tabor society uh but i'm getting a little ahead of myself i loved pipe and tabor and i used to kind of stand watching the pipe and tabor player trying to work out how they played it because often their fingers aren't moving or they're moving in a way that doesn't seem logical with the notes that they're playing and it's because a lot of notes come from overblowing and we always used to kind of dance with the, when we were little kids you know dance in circles around when the morris dancers were dancing and it was just like i guess part of the music you know how they say that between the ages of 0 and 7 you just soak up the world you're in and it's not something that's in your kind of thought or your logic or your mind it's just part of your anatomy and um morris dancing is very much like that however in our family my older sister had polio and she had it when she was i think 3 and 1/2 and it affected her right arm mostly so naturally my parents had to be quite protective and defensive to make sure that she had an area where she could be strong since physically she wasn't so strong so she was a musician in the family and she had piano lessons i did to be fair my parents did give me piano lessons but after a very short time the piano teacher said it was a waste of time waste of their money and there was no music in me and it's a long story but later on through my spiritual life i got seriously into the singing side of things the music side the singing is probably one of the things i enjoy most and i sang with an international choir every year at the festivals and i just thought if i was starting my career again i'd love to do something with music now be careful of your intense emotions because when you have a thought even almost an unnoticed and subconscious kind of aching thought like I wish I could have done something with music. There's a very likely chance that it got heard. And I had absolutely no idea that I would ever do anything in music properly. But that inner desire, that inner ache if you like, was released at various times in my life when I was absolutely happy as as happy as I've ever been when I was singing something. Roll on a few years. I was head of department for religious education. My colleague was a wonderful woman. We were actually joint head of department and we got on like a house on fire. But when our subject was treated badly at the school and we both resigned, we both found it hard to get another job. She was busy in the quite quite serious in the Church of England and she was able to find a position in the Norwich cathedral doing children's visits and she was a specialist on Julian of Norwich Saint Julian of Norwich and she also took took people to one or two other shrines 
in the area and did a lot of work with children there. My younger sister converted from Quaker to being in the Church of England when she was at university. She was active in the Christian Union and is very serious in Church of England. And she lived in Doncaster, which is kind of middle north of England. I was in London. And her church invited my colleague to come and give a day's seminar about Julian of Norwich. And of course, I wanted to go. I wanted to see my sister. And I was dying to see my colleague and learn more about Julian of Norwich as well. But I had no money. I had no money for travel. I had no money for petrol. I got a car. And I just was literally tearing my hair out. I was thinking, how can I get the money I need to get up to Doncaster on Saturday? And as I was thinking like that, I looked up and I happened to see a three-hole pipe, which my sister at some time over the past years must have given me. And it was on a shelf like an ornament. And I thought, well, I could try and play something. Now, when I was at university, we were single parent. I was a single parent and we didn't have much money. And I used to sing in the underground. But I'd forgotten all the songs and I wasn't in the mood for singing. But I did think, well, I could try the whistle. I could try the three-hole pipe. So I gathered all my courage together and I got the train down to Waterloo Station and I found an empty busking spot and I put a little plate on the floor and I looked down at my feet and I tried making a noise with this pipe and it wasn't very good and I wasn't able to even meet anybody's gaze. I was so shy and so embarrassed. But by the end of the week, I had learned English country gardens. And people found it hilarious to see a grey-haired old lady not playing the pipe properly. And it made a lot of people laugh and smile. And by the end of the week, not only had I learned English country gardens, but I found I loved it. I just found so much joy. And I got my head up. And I didn't mind if I was making mistakes. And I started to learn one or two other songs. And since that time, every weekend or nearly every weekend, when I haven't got other things on, I've gone at least one day and played. My favourite spot is outside Embankment. And I've kind of gotten known among the, the um, crowd of buskers who inhabit the place. And I've got a poster that says, lifting up the world one note at a time. And I always meditate well before I go and I just feel the cosmos is pouring energy and joy into me and I'm just sharing it. And I can actually play for an hour without a break now, without doubling up on songs. And I've got a CD of 45 carols and I am a pipe and tape player. And a few years ago, when I was playing, a lady stopped and she was standing at the bottom of the escalators where I was playing with her back to me. And I thought she must be checking off her shopping list because she was clearly writing something. And then as I paused between songs, she came over and said, my husband is the chairman of the Pipe and Tabor Society. Please give him a ring. And I'm now a member of the <laughs> Pipe and Tabor Society. And I go on tour with them and we play in the street and we play We played at York 
every five years, York has a mystery plays, medieval mystery plays weekend. And they have the traditional carts, which have a group of, of actors acting out a particular stage from the Bible. And then they all move round and the next cart goes to that spot. But we're connected with, we're divided up and connected with one of the carts and we play ahead of them in the street. And it's phenomenal. And I've played in churches and I've got my CD out just before the CDs became defunct. And it just is a very important part of my life. And one thing that I do still, even though there's the lockdown, I can't do busking, but I phone care homes and say, would you like me to come and play outside your care home? And you you have the elderly people that can't go out because of COVID, just waving and smiling and jumping up and down. And uh, one or two of them come walking by with a carer. And it just is joy. It's the most, for me, it's the most joyful instrument. It wasn't designed for anything else except to make people dance. And I, I brag now, I go to New York for, for pilgrimages um, every year to, to do with my spiritual teacher's birthday. We have a festival. And I go into Manhattan and I play outside Penn Station. And I fund my time while I'm there for my pocket money with my busking. So I've even had New York cops dance past. Now that is pretty special. Two New York cops linked arms and danced past. <laughs> oh dear! You know, the more I, the more I get to know you, and the more I hear your story, it's just like you've got such a interesting path to all of the pieces of your life it just blows me away as i said last time when you write your memoir i'm buying the first copy yeah i think what makes me able to do things is because of my meditation i live in the heart i don't have the kind of mind that uh, looks around cautiously to see what people are going to think it's just like hey i'm here i was saying to my, my daughter in india i was saying she's She's under a lot of stress because of COVID in India at the moment. And recently she met, we always message in the morning on WhatsApp. And she said, oh, I'm not well, nothing physical, but I'm just having a bad day. So I messaged back and said, well, things change. So if you're having a bad day today, it won't be bad tomorrow. And she said, what about a bad life? And I jumped into my serious mother mode and <laughs> yeah. like anything I said, what's what's making it tough today and she said it's raining well when it rains in Kolkata it belts down you can hardly see across the road so I just texted go and dance in the rain and she said oh you are funny you're so innocent and she can't dance in the rain because she's got a position to maintain she's a teacher in a prestigious school and you know, people would talk. And it's so sad, isn't it? Because we crush ourselves under other people's perspectives. And so many people aren't free to just be themselves because they're bound to the culture or the environment or the social situation that they're in. And somehow I just broke out of mine. So it's like, I know there's a, a poem that I've read um, about when I'm 70 I'll wear purple or something like that oh, I don't yeah. know if you know it but I feel like I've been wearing purple all my life <laughs> I think there was actually a second follow-up poem where somebody said exactly that <laughs> I'm not going to wait till I'm 70 <laughs> 
And and it's yeah, just talking about being crushed under others' expectations is. I often said one the re- only reason I had children was so I could keep on jumping in mud puddles. Oh yes. So, oh yes. Yeah. Wonderful. So. Wonderful. <laughs> okay, I'm determined to stay on track this week. Silk painting. Silk painting. Another nice story. Um, I'll start right back in the beginning, like I always love to. I've always loved drawing. And mum um, was a teacher in a village school near where we lived. But the school that I went to, um, they were both village schools with three classes, just infants, middle and, and sort of upper class. The, the head teacher at the school I was at and I didn't get on from very young age. And I think possibly the sort of behaviour that I always heard from my mum as a joke when she was telling things around the family is the kind of way it started because we'd been drawing and my mum had gone to see the head teacher for some reason and they were talking and I kept pulling mum's arm and saying, come and see my pictures on the wall, my pictures on the wall. And so in the end, the head teacher said, well, we'll all go to see your picture because they couldn't get rid of me. And I had painted my mum sweeping the floor. And when my mum used to sweep the floor, she used to put the chairs on the table and the table was there and the chairs were on top of it. And that particular week, one of the casters had broken and the table was drawn there with three big casters and a brick. (laughs) (laughs) So my mum was not amused and I think the uh, head teacher realised I was a bit of a pain right from that stage. But um, I'm quite dyslexic. I've never been diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty dyslexic. And one of the things that I used to have to spend my break times and my play times in school because I couldn't copy off the board accurately. And I was always being kept in at break time to copy off the board correctly. And I remember in top class being sent to the infants to ask them how to spell the word dog because I'd given it two Gs. And I do double and reverse both numbers and letters quite freely. The only way I got a degree was spell check. (laughs) But one thing I always did well in was art. And my exam results at the end of um, O-levels, which is our first when we're 16, we used to take O-levels, they do GCSE now. But that was the only subject I got a one in, you know, a top mark in. And I asked my art teacher that I want to do art for A-level. But I was already wanting to do sciences, so I had quite a heavy A-level load. And they said, no, you can't do four uh, A-levels. It's just too much, particularly because I wasn't particularly academic. So I said, well, can I do it in a year? Because I'd really like to. And the art teacher said, no, if you're capable of doing art A-level, you should do it in two years and get a good mark. And I entered it in a year. And my dad took me out for doing some of the landscape drawing. And my art teacher punished me by making me do half an hour of five-minute sketches every lunchtime, which actually was very, very good practice uh, for observational drawing. And I got an A in a year, so I was really chuffed. And later on, when I wanted to become an RE teacher, and I was looking at universities where I might go to study theology, I found Roehampton University in London offered an endless variety of twin subjects, And I was able to study theology and religious studies and art. 
and it was mural art and I specialised in stained glass. But when it came to teaching, I've been both head of department for art and for RE. I've taught art not as much as religious education because that is my first love as, as a subject to teach, but I've taught it a lot. And I always encourage the students to do different mediums, particularly if they're working for an exam, so that it's not just, okay, we're all going to do acrylic or we're all going to do something else. And one of the types of material that came up, of course, was silk painting. And what happened with silk painting, it's a bit like the one that chooses the wizard in Harry Potter. And when he held the right wand in his hand, it was like electric, just like like amazing. And when I started to touch anything to do with silk painting, I just wanted to do it. I didn't want to teach it. I'd kind of have to bring handcuffs so that the kids could do the work with it. Otherwise, I'd be so tempted to, to jump in. And so I started to get silk paint materials and play around and get a bit of, um, go on a few courses and become a closet silk paint artist. And when I found myself out of work, and money was a problem, I thought, well, I'm not stupid, I'm not helpless, there must be something I can do that's going to bring some money in. So I started giving silk paint workshops, silk paint parties, painting more myself, doing craft fairs and things like that. And I always did little things because I hadn't got much money and silk's expensive. But I was doing some supply work um, as a teacher, I was actually head of RE for a week, up in Sheffield, which is near Doncaster. So I didn't care if it was something to do with teaching religious education. I'd go anywhere in the country. And I went round the town looking for craft shops where I might be able to sell some of, the, of my paintings and my cards that I made. And in the craft shop, they'd got some silk scarves. And I looked at these things and they were £20. And my things were only selling for, you know, five or ten. And I thought, I could do that. And I'd get more money for it. So very cautiously, I ordered myself some silk, silk scarves that are ready rolled. And when I started painting abstract on silk, it was like I found my home. I literally was, it was just totally thrilling. And I've been painting silk scarves and shawls ever since. And I've got an Etsy shop. It's actually closed at the moment because I can't manage everything. But I do commissions at the moment. You know, people know that I make things, so I do them. And I will get my Etsy shop back together eventually. So um, I'm kind of missing my silk painting at the moment because I'm away from London and I don't have my studio here. But I will get back to it. And meanwhile, I have a few silk scarves to show you. Yay. I just <laughs> And to our, all our listeners who are now leaning in, wishing they could oh, see. Oh, yes, of course. I was forgetting. So <laughs> no, that's okay. these are called agate style because they're striped. Okay, but they're beautiful. I mean, look at the colors. Yeah. Okay, for the listeners, shades of what? Coral? That was, and... yeah, all different reds, browns, oranges, that one. This is yeah. um, blues and purples. That and they're what about sixteen inches wide? Uh, they're uh, these. There, there's two different sizes I've got here. This one is twenty-eight centimeters by one hundred and fourteen centimeters. This one I just showed you here is twenty-five centimeters by one hundred and forty. And those are the kind of standard size. This one is a slightly heavier silk. Oh, 
with the colors. And this is all ranges of greens and getting on to, to close to navy and blue. And yeah, I'm not going to spend the whole time looking. This is one that I call earth colors with the, um, it's almost like camouflage, green, gold, blue, I mean, green, gold, and brown and orange in those. This is one where somebody actually asked for burgundy. It was a commission, and I made three to see which one she'd like best, and it is really dark, deep reds and burgundies. There's some blue ones. So you could match almost, oh my goodness. I do them to, to order now. So people, I ask people to give me a main color and two, two side colors um, because I've literally got a whole stalls worth of, of scarves and I can't do stalls because Mr. Corona came along. That's a very dark one, browns and subtle colors, sort of men's shades. Although a lot of women like them. What I find is I love the bright colors, but a lot of people like to have something which goes with their outfit. So you get a lot of people asking for things which are quite subdued or have multicolors. Uh, whereas I think that if you get more than two or three, well, more than three or four colors in, it can get a bit messy in a way. Um, I, like, I prefer to keep to kind of three, two, three, four colors. But the, the customer's always right. So if they want something, or I do some magic ones, which are rainbow. I don't think I've got rainbows here, and I want to actually target the gay community because I think they would love my rainbow scarves. No, I've not got, I've not got them. There's a very light green one. Light. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love the blues in there. Yeah. So I could show you. Ah, oh, that's amazing. Ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, that's. Uh, I almost want to put a video clip in there. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to keep moving. Forest bathing. Forest bathing, yes. I made notes for forest bathing because I want to get it accurate. It started in Japan in the 1980s because in Japan they were having a massive amount of problems with stress. They've got a name for people dropping dead in their 30s and 40s. I can't remember what it is now, but um, people who were, you know, working too much, working too long hours, just literally dropping dead. And others... Um, actually could, killing themselves. There was a high suicide rate because of the level of stress in society. So they were working on what helps, what can we do to help people not be so stressed? And one idea somebody came up with was spending time in the forest and among trees. And when they started looking at that, they found it actually is very powerful. And they call it Shinrin-yoku, Shinrin-yoku, which translates as forest bathing. And it's basically immersing yourself in an environment where there are trees. And as they studied it more, because the results were so dramatic, they found that there are several reasons for it, that the neocortex, the, the kind of advanced bit of our brain, where all the calculations and creativity come from, and which is affected badly by stress, relaxes when it's surrounded by green. So if you want to be in a peaceful and relaxed environment, even just having a painting which is of trees or architecture which reflects the shape of trees, we've evolved through trees and our brains like them. So if, we're, if we've got the shapes of trees and if we've got the colour of trees around us, it helps our brain to relax. But there's another thing, which is that trees breathe out 
wood oils called phytoncides. That's why I had to make notes. Hang on. The phytoncides are chemicals, oils in the trees, which protect the trees against invasion by something that might make them go rotten, I suppose. You know, it's, it's part of their protection. And when we breathe them in, it enhances our immune system. Even if we just get in a forest atmosphere and have them touching our skin, they help our immune system. There are a particular type of cells called killer cells, which I'd never heard of, but apparently they go around your body looking for anything that might cause trouble and they get rid of them. So basically they're like the rubbish collectors in our bodies and it's extremely good at boosting and increasing the power and the number of killer cells, which can prevent many illnesses, including cancer. So they've done a lot of different studies. They've even found if they extract the phytoncides and put them on the windowsill of a hotel bedroom, it will have an effect on improving the immune system of the people who stay in that hotel room. There's, there's loads. It's fascinating if you look into it. Um, well, it's interesting. I'm just going to interrupt here because on the Vancouver Island here in the last few months, we've had a whole bunch of protests um, around old growth logging. So these beautiful old stands mm. and some of the indigenous people have been saying very similar things is we need these old growth forests because that's where we go to. And I won't say too much because I can't remember exactly, but they go to heal and just sort of ground themselves and things like that. Mm. Mm. You know, those are the indigenous people. It's not in response to you know, like in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, there is a boost to your immune system. There's an increase in the um, killer cells that clean up and protect you from it, from disease. The Chiba University of Japan has been researching since 2004. And they do some very interesting parallel studies where they get a group of people to do something in a forest situation and a group in an urban situation. So they might be walking around for the same amount of time in the same sort of weather and so on. And they find there's a 12.4% reduction in cortisol, which is one of the most problematic of the stress hormones when you spend the time in the forest. And there's a recent Japanese study of over 700 people, which found that time in the forest significantly lowers blood pressure and heart rate, you know, like slows your heart rate down. It accelerates healing and recovery. They found that even to have a room in a hospital with trees outside the window, the people in that room will have a faster recovery rate and go home several days earlier because they're recovering from their operations faster than ones who have bricks outside the window. Um, so it really is very, very interesting. And the other thing is that the way that being around nature of any kind, and particularly the, in the colour of green, reduces the stress in your neocortex, and it brings a 50% improved creative and problem-solving response after three days spent in nature and away from modern technology. So all you stressed-out executives to just go on a hike for a few days, leave their <laughs> phones behind. So anyway, because I grew up on a farm surrounded by nature and it is really important to me 
for my own mental health and happiness to, to spend time around nature. I brought it into my program, the Seven Steps to Happiness program that I mentioned last time. And it's the most powerful and the most loved bit of the Seven Steps program when we do it at home, you know, like face to face. So I found getting it into the online program quite tricky because I moved my program online due to COVID. But I bring it into week three, which is all about the world we live in, the environment we're in. And I put some information on a little video about, uh, I share a video with something to do with forest bathing each day that week. And we've got a little Facebook group and we kind of, I kind of say, have you been yet? Here's some photos of where I was. And usually now I'm finding people who've been on the program before, have got their photos up before I've got mine. And they, <laughs> especially with families with kids, they, they go for a day out somewhere. And it is extremely powerful in increasing happiness and reducing stress, which is raising consciousness, what my business is all about. And I really love it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I look out my window here and all I can see pretty much is green and a 10 minute walk and I'm in the forest. Oh, so no. I will have to make a more conscious effort to, uh, to really do that. I've got a canal 10 minutes walk away. So that's nice. Oh, and there are quite a lot of trees around there. And there were some trees that seeded themselves into the garden where I'm staying, uh, sycamore trees, which aren't particularly respectable when you're looking at what's good for the environment because they're not indigenous to, to Britain. But they seed very powerfully. And I've been digging them up and taking them down to the canal with me and looking for spots where they can grow. And I think that three of them have died, which they, the weather's been very dry and they were only babies, kind of little tiny roots that I pulled up from between bricks and things like that. But there are three that are a bit bigger and they, I go down there with a bottle of water as well and, or an empty bottle and fill it in the canal and give them a bit of water. And those three seem to be holding their own so far. So, yeah, we've all got to plant lots of trees. So, oh, exactly. The world yeah. needs more trees. Yeah. 